You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Welcome to this week's edition of Carbon Removal Newsroom. Your regular host, Radhika Mulgafkar, is out this week, so I'm going to be taking the helm. My name is Asa Kamer. I'm the producer of the show. And this week we have our policy panel and we've got a, an excellent panel. So you'll be in good hands, even without Radica. Um, so following last year's landmark climate legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, members of Congress have been looking for niche areas of climate progress. Uh, so one such example is the Carbon Removal and Emissions Storage Technologies or the CREST Act. Uh, it's a bipartisan piece of legislation aimed at accelerating carbon removal and storage solutions. It was introduced by Senators Susan Collins, a Republican from Maine, and Maria Cantwell, a Democrat from Washington State, and also has a bipartisan version in the House. And the CREST Act tasks the Department of Energy with initiating research programs and exploring the feasibility of a number of carbon removal pathways. It focuses on several carbon removal techniques, such as biomass-based removal, ocean CDR, uh, as well as DAC paired with geologic storage. Uh, a, bi- a letter of support has been signed by a wide swath of organizations familiar to our audience, such as ClearPath, uh, Stripe, and Vesta, and many more. So in today's episode, we're going to delve into the details of the CREST Act and the implications of its bipartisan support. Uh, we're also going to take a look at some recent developments at the UNFCCC, which we talked about last week, but we're going to get our panel this week to discuss as well because it's so important. Uh, so the work going on there to revise Article 6.4, and as a reminder, the tone of the first draft that they did that they that they put out has attracted a lot of attention and controversy for the way that it characterized CDR. So our panel this week are two experts in carbon removal. First, we have Savvy Bowman, a program manager at ClearPath, who works on the organization's carbon removal initiatives. Hi, Savvy. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Seth. Thanks for having me back. All right. And we also have Holly Buck, who's an assistant professor of environment and sustainability at the University of Buffalo and an author of the book, Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough. Hi, Holly. Hello. Awesome. All right. So let's dive into the Crest Act here. Savvy, you're in DC. You've been on our show before, kind of giving us the blow-by-blow accounts of what's going on in Congress. Uh, You're plugged in. So what is the Crest Act? How would it work? And why do you think I mean, why, what are these lawmakers trying to do? Why are they, why has this been introduced? Yeah, great question. Um, so as you correctly pointed out, Asa, the CREST Act was introduced last Congress by Senators Susan Collins, um, a Republican from Maine, and Maria Cantwell, a Democrat from Washington State. So bipartisan in the Senate. And then in the House, Representatives John Curtis, a Republican from Utah, and Scott Peters, a Democrat from California. It has been reintroduced this Congress in the Senate um, and had a couple other um, senators included in this reintroduction. Uh, Senators Cassidy, a Republican from Louisiana, um, Senators King, an independent from Maine, and Senators Coons, uh, a Democrat from uh, Delaware. And so this bill, it does three key things. It expands RD&D, CDR RD&D. It authorizes uh, that's first. Number two, it authorizes funding for assessments for technological or economic barriers to wide-scale deployment of CDR and uh, facilitates life cycle assessments. 
And lastly, it authorizes a competitive purchase program to uh, purchase from CDR providers that not only meet the quality criteria, but also uh, meet the low cost criteria set by DOE. So the Title I is really where all the RD&D lives. And it's, it's great because it builds off of programs that were previously authorized in the Energy Act of 2020, uh, which modernized RD&D at DOE and included the actual first comprehensive federal carbon removal research and development program. Um, but this expansion then also includes pathways like bikers, ocean carbon removal, and mineralization. So looking at understanding how we can expand the portfolio of solutions is really what the Crest Act does and how we can then kind of pull a lot of these solutions along and get them to that commercial point is, uh, is what we're hoping the procurement provisions are able to accomplish. Great. And so you kind of touched on this, but I'm going to ask Holly about like a little context for the last few years. So Holly, what do you think about the trajectory of federal support for carbon removal in the last few years? And do you think the passage of the Crest Act would be a positive development? I mean, it's a relative question. Relative to nothing, I think it's been pretty decent, both in terms of funding for research and moving into demonstration with the DAC hubs. Um, and so I think obviously this would be positive. I think that the first part is, you know, you could see it as a continuation of existing work that's already going on with regards to R&D, but with more techniques, which I think is good. Um, my main concern is how it will be organized within DOE and the federal government, which we can get into because these techniques really cross both domains as well as technological readiness levels. Um, but I think it's great, for example, to see a report on the offshore capacity for deep sea carbon storage. That's something where we really do need to further develop the scientific basis. So I think that's great. I think the pilot carbon removal purchasing program with the reverse auction mechanism would be really good. Um, the only thing I, I think is missing worth calling out is that you have this title on carbon removal quantification where they're calling for assessments of technological or economic barriers to the wide scale deployment of carbon removal pathways. Again, like we're missing assessing the social landscape, which I'm not surprised about because it's a continuation of the existing pattern, but this is a place where we really do need to start to pivot and think about actually funding social analysis and engagement and all of that stuff if we are serious about scale up. We, we've, we've touched on it a bit, but Savvy, can you break down for us the, I mean, something that's interesting about this is the, the procurement component, the reverse auction. It's a step past focusing only on research, like Holly said. So why would that be significant and how politically likely do you think it is that the reverse auction will survive to the final bill or to passage? Well, you're absolutely right. It is significant because this will send a clear signal to the market that there is a ready and serious customer for their product. Uh, procurement acts like a time-shifting mechanism. It helps establish an initial market demand for a product that and competitively bring down costs. So as many of you know us know, uh, CDR is a newer solution uh, or the newer solutions within CDR, sorry, um, can go up to $2,000 per ton, depending on the level of technological like intervention required. And emerging ocean technologies that are currently in the lab, like electrochemical separation of CO2 from seawater or ocean alkalinity enhancement, may cost even more depending on the infrastructure needs, um, especially because building in the ocean is not cheap. <laughs> 
uh, this will then also have an immediate impact and catalyze more private sector investments beyond what we've seen, uh, you know, with the Frontier Fund for things like projects and debt financing. So I'll also note that it's it's so important to have purchasing a purchasing program focused on the criteria of CDR uh, purchasing paired with a low cost tiebreaker because we want to make sure that the solutions being deployed have good MRV durability and the capability to come down in cost and cost and um, to Holly's point also have that good engagement and you know social aspect as well. Uh, as for the politics. I'm optimistic that we'll see this move forward. I chuckled in the beginning because I like to think that I'm an optimistic person. And so uh, Republicans have worked together in the past to pass legislation on energy innovation, you know, through the Energy Act and the IIJA and also in the Chips and Science Act. Um, I think innovation is a bipartisan support. So this too is an extension of that support. And so we have the opportunity to continue that bipartisanship here. This act was first proposed in 2020. Just for those of us who aren't kind of in the loop, how does yeah, that yeah. work? <laughs> well, so it was introduced at the tail, or the first time Crest Act was introduced was at the tail end of last Congress. And so, um, you know, there wasn't any definitive action that was able to be taken before the Congress was over. And so that's where I think we're seeing a lot of push for it to be reintroduced in this Congress so that there will be action because we're, you know, kind of early on in the Congress and we have uh, a little bit of ramp time before, um, you know, socialization and, and voting and, and all of that happens. So I think that it's something that at least we at ClearPath are optimistic and um, would love to see move forward. All right, great. So we'll have to keep an eye on this over the next like year or so. And and hopefully we can follow this all the way to the end. Um, so Holly, going back to the the sort of politics of it, we have a one of the authors, Maria Cantwell from Democratic Washington, a state that's been very proactive on climate policy. We have a co-sponsor, Bill Cassidy, who's been a big supporter of oil and gas from Fair Republican Louisiana. They're all interested. So is this a positive sign to you, or do you think that it potentially poses a risk that the ultimate bill might be sort of watered down if it's something for everyone? I think it's probably positive. I'm not totally sure what watering down would look like. It really does have a lot of things bound up together. So under geological carbon removal, you're looking at enhanced weathering as well as mineralization, um, geologic mineralization. And then with aquatic carbon removal, you're looking at direct ocean capture, but also blue carbon. And thinking about one thing I found interesting is that in the assessment of offshore carbon storage, they're looking at geological formations, but also biomass sinking, but also within the oceans is liquid CO2 storage, which I think would be really contentious, but I think it's worth, you know, doing a scientifically based assessment on it. So I, I do think that right now I like how, you know, it's kind of looking at all the stuff and I hope um, it wouldn't lose that. And Savvy, what do you think about the bipartisanship? I mean, obviously like on its face, that's a positive development and there's not a lot of areas within climate policy that both sides seem to agree. So we have a divided Congress here. What What is your take on the bipartisan nature of this? I think bipartisanship is very significant. It's, it's what ensures sustainability and technological progress. I mean, whenever there is a partisan exercise that excludes the opinion of the other side, um, you know, progress tends to be stifled in the next Congress as some hurts feelings take time to recover. And innovators and project developers are then kind of 
the ones who are subject to this because they have to adapt or even you know halt operations depending on the policies that are in place so this sometimes can kind of create a lack of security and unsure timelines um so if we're if we're wondering if bipartisanship is a good thing, it definitely is. Um, most of the major energy legislation that was enacted in the last three years uh, was either enacted on a bipartisan basis or contained provisions that have historically enjoyed bipartisan support, like 45Q. Uh, and fortunately, carbon removal has, uh, you know, been a bipartisan space. I was actually at Carbon Unbound in New York City a couple of weeks ago, and we were just talking about the fact that bipartisanship in CDR is actually um, very unique. And I think keeping that bipartisanship will be sort of that key to making sure that the industry is able to uh, scale and, um, and and really flourish, you know? So um, I think the Crest Act is, is a great example and is one way we're gonna be able to, to uh, continue in this space. It is very interesting, the persistence of the bipartisan support. And um, Holly, you recently spent some time within the DOE, you know, reading how this would work. What can you tell us about the impact of this funding? How, it, where would it go? Um, and, you know, what do you think, like, do you think that would be, like, is it going to the right place based on what you saw from within the DOE? Well, I don't know if there's one right place for it. I think it's going to many right places, but I think there needs to be some mechanism by which these places can talk with each other. So you've got some money going to the Bioenergy Technologies Office in the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy within DOE. You have some going to fossil energy and carbon management. There's some things where you know they'll have to work together. There's a discussion in this bill about, for example, co-firing fossil fuels with biomass. Um, but then there's some things like genetic modification of soil enhancements. Well, there you have NSF and Agricultural Research Service, and you've got all these energies and um, agencies that need to coordinate. And I know there's been proposed legislation trying to improve interagency coordination, um, but I don't know what the status of that is. And so that is an area of concern, um, but I'm optimistic we can we can figure it out. While we're on the subject, I guess the question's for both of you, but are there other policy developments, legislation or funding or anything that you're going to be watching for related to carbon removal for the remainder of this Congress and this this presidential term between now and the next election? Savvy, what do you think? We're actually tracking quite a few things, but I think it's more so on the permitting and storage side because a lot of um, companies are coming to stepping up to, to bat on carbon removal and, and even carbon capture. And so ensuring that there's enough storage space for these projects is really going to be critical in the next years in transportation and all of these infrastructure pieces. So we're really uh, watching permitting classifications for storage. So looking at whether or not um, CO2 injection into basalt would be a permissible activity through the class six injection program. Um, understanding whether or not if a class two well is uh, no longer used for extraction, whether it can fully transition to a class six well and just be used purely for storage. Uh, and then also just movement on class six primacy generally to make sure that if there are states who are applying that, you know, we are moving um, in an orderly pace to get these permits because project developers are, uh, are needing that sort of certainty and that time timeline understanding. 
Yeah, that, that's that's something we've heard a lot about on the show um, is some of the regulatory hurdles when it comes to underground storage. Just like briefly, I mean, are you hopeful about this in terms of like resolving this bottleneck? Do you think there's legislative fixes coming up soon? I'm hopeful about it. Uh, I know that, you know, EPA, the main concern from them is that they are a small group of people. And, you know, the funny thing is you can't really get a underground injection control program plastic specialist overnight. So it's tough to, to fully staff a large group and um, all these projects coming along is, is just going to add to their workload. And so making sure that there's enough capacity is one thing. Um, but I am optimistic because we we started seeing a uh, movement, you know, Louisiana got their proposed rule. Um, hopefully that, that, you know, once that deadline is met, um, we'll be able to see the final rule published. And I believe there's something like, I don't know, 70 EPA permit requests for class six uh, storage um, projects. So I'm optimistic that there is going to be movement. I think we just need to make sure that we're providing the best support we can to these agencies to be able to um, effectively do their jobs. Cool. Well, I kind of want to do like a whole podcast series just on that. Holly, what about you? Are there, what are, what are you looking for in terms of like policy or, um, you know, federal action? Honestly, I'm mostly focused on the execution of the policy we've seen in the past year or two. And, you know, what actually manifests, I can't even wrap my head around new things. The research funding that goes out, the hydrogen hubs, I mean, kind of all of it. Well, um, actually, one yeah, thing I just do want to note uh, before we move on that's actually a pretty interesting development um, is that in the uh, FY23 Consolidated Appropriations Act, there was language included for CDR purchasing. And something we're mm -hmm. watching is the implementation of that. So I know DOE is currently going through that process of figuring out what that looks like and um, trying to figure out, you know, what that breakup of, of purchasing looks like, who's going to own that purchasing power, because I think it was at the DOE level, not at, a, an, at an office level. So that'll be really interesting to see how they uh, fully implement it. And then um, what happens in the FY24 Appropriations Act and whether or not there's any plus ups to that uh, would be something we, we want to keep an eye out for. Okay, great. Well, this is why it's good having you on the show because there's a lot happening. It's very hard to keep up with all the details. And that's just the US, but now we have to talk about global governance. So we're going to talk a little bit about the UNFCCC, which as our listeners probably know, they've been revising um, or adding language about carbon removal to the to the, the text that governs the carbon trading system within the uh, Paris Agreement. And so it's caused some controversy. They they cast a little shade on engineered carbon removal. So Holly, what did what did you think of that this development and the draft statement they put out? Yeah, so with with the context that you talked about uh, this with Will Burns um, already, I'll, I'll the first thing I'll say to contextualize it is it's not exactly a statement. It's an informational note, kind of like a background note and actually the fourth version of it. And so these kind of documents come out all the time. So it's not clear to me that it's super important because when governments actually sit down to negotiate, the result will be based on their objectives. But I think it got pressed because it was picked up in social media and the media knows that CDR is algorithmogenic. So, you know, EE News had their story. UN slams carbon removal is unproven and risky, which they put a picture of a coal bucket wheel excavator. Sorry, I just had to rant about that. <laughs> I, looked at the, 
have to do with carbon removal. So, you know, that's the reason we're talking about it. But, um, you know, there's a meeting on the Article 6.4 Mechanism Supervisory Body in, in Bonn, um, kind of ahead of the clim bigger climate meeting in Bonn that's happening right now. And already they dropped 10-year accounting from consideration, so that's good. And there's a now, another round of a public consultation process, so you could write to that. It's open till June 19th, and then they'll do, you know, a fifth or however many iterations of this informational note they're going to do. So I'm glad it's like getting people engaged in, in the UN process, I guess, is the optimistic take. Well, that's actually breaking news to me that they dropped the 10-year accounting portion, which we touched on last week. So. That's that's good to hear. And Savvy, what about you? Did you have a reaction to this update and how have you been responding? I was a little surprised, I'm not gonna lie. Um, and I know they say even bad press is good press, but I would like to, you know, highlight that I would love it for B for CDR to just, you know, right now uh remain neutral or get good press because especially if it's misinformation or uh, incorrect information, that's, that's really when it becomes a challenge. So, I mean, ClearPath, we signed on to a community letter that more than 100 carbon removal experts signed on to in response to the UNFCCC's Article 6.4. Um, so uh, Carbon Business Council was uh, the leader on a lot of this effort um, and they have the full letter on their page, but um, yeah, we, we we did sign on because we felt that we want to make sure that carbon removal does stay part of the solution and, and there's recognition of that. Holly, so the, you're, you're kind of giving us an insight into the process. You know, it's a large committee. Um, they get a lot of input from outside groups. Do you know much? Do you know much about the process for these specific revisions and what kind of groups and points of view were being represented to get this output that you know this 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 view that a lot of people have taken issue with yeah so I don't know what their writing process are but you know you can read the public input that's been submitted and so there's some from the carbon removal industry there's some from countries which is kind of interesting like Korea wanted to consider storage and products because they might not have a huge geological or terrestrial mm -hmm. capacity Russia wanted consideration of other greenhouse gas removals besides CO2. Why? I'm not sure. Uh, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, um, is that the right way to say that acronym? <laughs> Basically, they, they wanted none of this. I had no idea how like hostile they were to carbon removal. And so how all of these perspectives added up into that document, I have no idea. I don't know if anybody knows. Um, but again, it, it will go into negotiation eventually um, and be probably completely different. Yeah. And and Holly, do you think that that part of what's going on here is that maybe some of the decision makers involved aren't like it's, you know, this is a fast moving field. You know, generally we're, we're we are pretty optimistic about carbon removal and some of the innovations happening. Do you think part of it is that they just don't know how far the field has come and are, are you know, basing it on some outdated assumptions? I don't know, because the input I read was all, I mean, it was well-informed in, in in its way, right? right? Even if it had its own perspective. And so I think the problem is that maybe the industry or the field is dominated by the US and Europe, generally the global North. And so, you know, this is an international group that's considering it. And, you know, right. this is maybe what we get for not doing 
better um, outreach and collaborative research uh, internationally. There you go. So question, one more question for both of you. Uh, last question. We, we did see, like Holly said, kind of a big response um, from the CDR industry, at least a lot of U.S. representation, which maybe goes to Holly's last point, and Europe representation signing this letter from the Carbon Business Council in, in different ways, some organizing going on. Is Do we think it's too little too late, or is this maybe an indication of more collaboration and action going forward in, in maybe a more positive way? Savvy, do you have thoughts on that? I tend to think that this is a uh, positive indication of more collaboration and action in the future. I know that, um, you know, the response was a little reactive. And sometimes when the U.S. is so focused on our innovation here at home, um, you know, we, we don't necessarily translate that to global initiatives. But um, I think that this is one iteration and there is going to be many more. And there's a lot of optimism to work together. On, on these solutions. So I, I perceive this as an opportunity to continue collaboration and develop stronger uh, partnerships um, domestically and internationally. I mean, at ClearPath, we just recently expanded to work on uh, international global policy. And so we're hoping to, you know, set up a, a little bit more coordination um, internationally on these innovations. Uh, I have to admit, you know, we, we are focused on uh, some niche power sector areas uh, for now, but I know that there's been significant momentum around CDR internationally, especially when it comes to things like COP and, you know, COP coming up this year. So hopefully that'll be a really good way to spotlight uh, some of the global efforts. Great. No, I, I do. I would basically agree. I I think that the industry had been participating in some of these comment periods last year, um, but it was nice to see kind of the quick mobilization in, in real time um, to this latest iteration. And so hopefully that collaboration will become more international, more with some of the parties that were also responding rather than just kind of to this UN body. We're going to wrap up there. Uh, I want to thank you both for joining the show, coming on our panel and talking about United States and global CDR governance. And there's a lot happening. So we'll hopefully have a lot more conversations with both you in the future. And to our listeners, make sure to like and subscribe, maybe leave a five-star review. If you're like me, you have a lot more questions. There's a lot more you want to hear about. So you're going to have to wait till next week. We have more, more policy talk coming up next week. So Savvy and Holly, thank you both so much. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.